Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. When you arise in the morning, think of what a privilege it is to be alive, to breathe, to think, to enjoy, to love. Is a quote from the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius, who embodied the Platonic concept of the philosopher king, a ruler who does not seek power for his own sake, but to help his people. I thought this was a fitting quote for our guest today, someone who is a strong advocate for emerging talent, seeing people and organisations thrive through strong cultures, clear and aligned purposes and actions. Our guest is Michael Schneider, Managing Director of Bunnings Group, Australia's leading retailer of home improvement and outdoor living products with revenues in excess of $17.75 billion. Prior to joining Bunnings in 2005, Michael had a diverse career across retail and financial services at the Warehouse Group, Westpac and Target. He's also chairman of Fight MND, Australia's leading independent motor neurone disease foundation. Love me, love you. A mental health charity and sits on the boards of Melbourne United Basketball, Corporate Mental Health Alliance of Australia and Global Home Improvement Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite, world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners, in the United Kingdom, Germany, and Turkey, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blend & Partners Executive Search and Board Advisory. In today's episode, we are treated to fascinating stories from Michael's career. From a 15-year-old casual pushing trolleys and punching checkouts, who found a passion in retailing and rose through the ranks, to being at the helm of Bunnings in a red shirt and an apron. He highlights the magic of a team, the heart and soul of a business, what's in store for retail, and the next normal for Australia's workforce. So sit back and enjoy. Leadership is a contact sport. Michael, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Michael, as you know, we're renowned for asking some pretty tough questions. And I guess to put you on the back foot and get this get this conversation started, I'd like to know... How do you like your sausages? Well, it's it's a it's a topic of hot debate at Bunnings. Um, yeah, I, I certainly like them well cooked. You never want to never want an uncooked sausage, but uh, we like to keep them nice and safe as well. Which at Bunnings means the onions go under the sausage. But uh, it's always been something that's been a bit of a debate. So there you go. 
Sauce, no sauce. All right, sauce and mustard. Uh, and the so- the mustard sort of come has come late. You know, I think it's a bit of a sort of a uh, sort of a tilt of the hat to the American hot dog. But there's something about that flavour combination that um, yeah is is pretty special. And uh, definitely down at my local Bunnings on on most Saturday and Sunday mornings, supporting local communities. And that's what it's about, isn't it, Michael? That's the one part of the essence of Bunnings, the local community and its engagement. Firstly, what does Bunnings stand for? Look, I think Bunnings is, plays a really important part in, in the lives of, of all Australians and New Zealanders, the two countries in which we, we operate our, our business today. You know, our homes are such an important part of our lives, whether we're living at home with mum or dad or we're renting our first place or first home buyer or or, you know, sort of moving into into the sort of, you know, more more mature years like like you and I, Greg, you know, or, or hopefully a bit more mature anyway. But, you know, the home does play a really important part. It's, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a shelter. I think the last few years we've, we've seen it as a home classroom. It's like, you know, a home office, and I think it'll be a, a home office for a long time. It's an enormous source of value and wealth for many Australians in New Zealand. forms a big part of our, our financial asset base, and, you know, Australians certainly have a, a love, love affair with property. And, you know, it's a it's a safe sanctuary. It's a place to bring people, and you know, I think by extension, Bunnings, you know, Bunnings does play a a big role in that. You know, we we provide products and services for everything from the front gate to the back fence of of your home or, or property, and and we like to inspire people to to get in, have a red hot go at doing things around their homes. For thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of our customers, we support their small businesses through our trade business as well. And then as you touched on, you know, we play a really important role in the community. We sort of see our stores as that third space. If, if home and, and work are the first two spaces in our lives, community facilities are a third space. And for a lot of people, Bunnings is that. We see community groups coming into our stores to do activities, to raise funds. We've got dedicated team members in our stores who work locally uh, with community groups, supporting grassroots activities, whether it's preschools and primary schools or junior sporting clubs or the Lions or Rotary. So... Yeah, I think that um, you know Bunnings is is that, and the the snag is a synonymous part of of that experience, and it raises tens of millions of dollars every year for community groups. One hundred percent of funds raised go to the community groups, and I think at a time where it is, you know, people are doing it pretty tough, being able to support those groups is a pretty pretty cool thing. You know, Michael, I've always just sort of wondered how many people have actually come through and bought sausages. It must be in its millions. Maybe, Michael, for the benefit of the audience, could you expand on what is Bunnings? What is the scale of the operation? How many staff, locations, the growth over the last five, ten years? And can you frame it all together for us? Yeah, look, Bunnings is, um, you know, it's Australia and New Zealand's largest home improvement outdoor living retail business. Our, our Bunnings, or stores under the Bunnings, Bunnings Warehouse brand, uh, it's about 385, 386 locations across Australia and New Zealand that, that are open to trade. We've got a number of manufacturing sites that build our floor and roof houses for people's homes and, and frames that, that go around that as, as well. We've got distribution centres, support centres, all of the things that you need to sort of run a retail business. We've got over 100 uh, businesses that trade under the Beaumont Tiles business, which is a specialist hard flooring business. And we've got a number of tool stores under the Toolkit Depot uh, name. We acquired Adelaide Tools in 2020. We've expanded now into uh, Western Australia uh, not long before we're into a couple of markets here on the on the east coast of Australia, and then we'll uh, get into New Zealand as well, servicing the specialist tool market. So in all, the Bunnings Group, if you like, has over 500 trading stores across Australia and New Zealand. We employ just over 55,000 Aussies and, and, and Kiwis in our team. Most of those team members work in our stores and distribution centres, and, and a few of us 
we work out of our support centres, which we've got in all major capitals around Australia and a support centre in Auckland as well. The business started in 1886 with a couple of brothers that came out from the UK with a timber milling business in Fremantle in Western Australia. We became a, a national entity in 1993 when we bought Bunnings in Western Australia, bought the McEwan's business uh, here in Melbourne where I'm based. And in 2001, the acquisition of Howard Smith gave us access to the BBC hardware house business and that gave us access to the New Zealand market. In the last few years, we've seen significant growth. In the last three financial years to the year ended, uh, June 30, we saw our revenue grow 30 uh, odd percent, our revenue just a little bit more than that. So really significant growth and obviously a lot of that fueled by the pandemic that we've that we've lived through where, you know, all of us were spending extended periods of time at home. So you know, revenue for, for the year ended was pretty close to $18 billion. Our, our earnings were 2.2 and, and a bit billion in return on capital above 70%. So some really strong uh, financial metrics there when you sort of think about the role that and the size and scale of Bunnings, you know, against the landscape of corporate Australia. I went to Bunnings twice this weekend, so I'm like probably like a lot of people who did the same thing. Michael, what do you put the magic down to? I think the magic's our team, full stop. You know, we've got incredible products, incredible value propositions, but the team are the heart and soul of our business. You know, it's quite a rigorous recruitment process to get a role at Bunnings. We very much recruit for cultural fit. We have a strong bias towards permanent team members. We have a really strong representation of uh, team members who've been, you know, who've got plenty of life experience, whether it's, you know, years and years in fields like carpentry or, or electrical or horticultural. You know, these sorts of skills really give our team members the confidence to be able to connect and engage. And I think our team members deeply understand their local communities. They live in their local communities. They send their kids to the local schools, sporting clubs, grow up in those communities. They understand what's on the community's mind and they're able to sort of service you know, service those needs. And, you know, when you complement that with a sort of environment where you can drop the tools in the garden and you're a bit muddy on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon and just jump in the car and go down to Bunnings, you don't need to scrub up to come in. You can bring your four-legged friend if you want. You know, all these things make it really feel like an extension of the of the home. And that's something that I think is a really secret part of it. And take our work really, really seriously at Bunnings. We, we, we care deeply about our team. We care deeply about our customers. We want to make sure that value proposition is right. But we don't take ourselves seriously. And I think that permeates the the culture as well and, and is a really important hallmark of where Bunnings is today. Look, if you had a magic wand and you could change three or four things, I guess, from where the state and federal government are positioning retail and where the economy is at and where the workforce is at, what what would you advise them? I think there's three three that sort of spring to mind for me, you know, one is is the safety and well-being of our team. I think the pandemic has brought the very best in the community out and it's it's sadly brought some of the worst out. And team members in in retail, hospitality, the health sector have had to endure really quite poor behaviour. I think there's been a rise in, um, you know, organised retail crime. I think there's, you know, sadly, you know, challenges around homelessness and drug abuse. And, and those things do carry over into retail workplaces. And I think, you know, strong legislation to protect the well-being you know, the team members, you know, businesses have a very strong responsibility for the welfare of their team, but we need to be backed up with strong legislation as well to make sure that, you know, when police are called or, or an action is taken, that, that there's an enforcement regime that allows us to keep our team members. I think there is a skill shortage in Australia. You know, I heard just the other day, you know, calls here in Victoria for thousands of, of people to come in and work in hospitality sector. I think one of the unintended consequences of border closures and, and restrictions on on travel and those things is that the sort of skills and, and attributes that, that are so desperately needed in hospitality, service, retail, 
you know, just aren't there at the moment. And, um, you know, it is it is a real challenge to find people that want to work in these sectors. Some of it does come down to the working environment, and that's probably where I sort of give some thoughts, um, you know, around sort of legislation to keep keep people safe. But skilled work coming in, and, and retail businesses are evolving. You know, we've got the same challenges with supply chains and technology that that other businesses have. So, you know, accessing those skills. And, and last but not least is, you know, a, a real sort of contemplation of what more national consistency could look like around, Workplace regulation and, and other things. I think the pandemic was a was a sort of a pinch point for sort of seeing just how effective the, the federation can and can't be. But you know, some really different requirements under COVID, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I think at at one point in time across Australia and New Zealand, between both international, state, and intrastate uh, restrictions, you know, we ran the business fifteen different different ways at one point in time, and that adds cost, it adds yeah, complexity. Right. There's an execution risk to that for from a team member safety and a customer experience point of view. So safety for our team, skills and, and national consistency would be three for me. Didn't mention education. That comes into skills shortage. It comes skills? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What about around technology and cyber, et cetera? I think you've, you've been fairly strong and fairly forthright on that in the last six to 12 months. Yeah, look, absolutely. I think we, we've got a long way to go to get the sort of skills coming out of universities. You know, I think it's getting more boys and girls doing STEM subjects at, at, at school. And I was talking to some family members recently. I got a, got a, got a, a young cousin who's going into, into grade nine. It was great to hear that he's going to be doing coding next year. I think that's absolutely fantastic to see. But you know, having had kids recently go through the tertiary system, you know, could we get more more into data science and, and technology in those areas? But but equally important is trades. Uh, you know, how do we get more young people going into trades because the tertiary path isn't for everybody? Uh, and there's clearly a skill shortage on the construction side as well and, and in the trade. So, you know, education does come into skills. Skilled migration is going to address some of that. Organic skills development, yeah, absolutely another really important part. So you're a natural retailer by background? Is it in your DNA? Was it as a young kid? Did you feel you're trading on the side, or maybe maybe an accidental retailer? I, th- I think um, you know, as as young people, we all we all need a, a source of income, and the bank of mum and dad certainly in my family wasn't a, a particularly fluid one, so you needed to go out and okay. and and get a job, and and I did that through um, you know, a little toy shop in the city way back in the in the mid '80s, and then into Target uh, late in the '80s as I was sort of heading towards the back end of high school. I, I went to university to be a a high school history and English teacher, I realised that wasn't wasn't for me. I, I went on to finish some some study and, and finish an arts degree, but I was fortunate enough to get a get a traineeship. And you know, I love you know love then and and love now working around team, love talking to customers, love product. You know, so I probably fell into retail by accident, mm-hmm. uh, but certainly found a home when I was there, and 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 have enjoyed almost all of my career um, in the retail sector. Traineeships, they still in full play these days. Yeah, I, I remember doing what's called TMP or the Target Management Program. I, I'd say that was 91, 92 maybe, but um, we've got what we call the Future Leader Program. It's a three-stage program for young young and old leaders in our business um, to get into those frontline leadership roles, whether it's a, a coordinator or a department manager in a, in a Bunnings or a first-level leadership role. And, and we then complement that with other leadership programs as we go through both internal, external, and, and you know, for some of our more specialized team that includes international study but I think you know those those leadership programs are, are really important retail I think is an industry even today in the 2020s where you can start on a shop floor and you know build an incredibly successful career you know through to, to executive level if that's where you would like your career and we certainly encourage people at Bunnings to put down roots and and build fantastic careers and I love it when I I catch up with team members who are doing big important roles in in our business or other parts of the West Farmers Group and I I can still remember them as a 
you know, as a, as a young version of themselves, whether it was pushing a trolley, punching a checkout, or uh, you know, leading a small team in a store, and here they are leading a, a region or a, or a country or a, or a major function. I think that's just absolutely fantastic. Now, you did take one side step during your career. You moved into banking for a short period of time. I did. I did. What were the takeaways? Oh, I think I think the financial services industry for me, industry for me was fantastic. I was a you know a, a young guy at Target. I was probably more ambitious than my talents were were letting me be, and and I was you know typical of my my age and a little bit impatient. And back in those days, there there was no no internet. That that dates you, doesn't it? But there was no internet. And I was reading job ads in a newspaper, and um, you know he was a job from a recruiter we were looking for people with retail skills for. Um, a financial services business that, that wanted them. And, and I went along to the interview not knowing who I was talking to or, or what the company was. And it turned out to be Westpac Bank. And it turned out to be a, a fantastic five or six years. I, I went in on an accelerated uh, management program. Mm-hmm. I became a branch manager. Yep. Uh, spent time in HR. Spent time in small business markets. I spent time in a uh, strategy role. I think banks are incredible for their size, scale, complexity, and, and the development opportunities that they throw at you. But by sort of 2000, 2001, I'd worked out that it was a great place to be. I liked the people I work with. I did like the customer interaction, but it didn't have the pace and energy that particularly operational retail offers you. And I was fortunate enough to um, to have a couple of contacts that I'd worked with at the bank who'd gone to work for uh, the New Zealand retail business, the warehouse group, and a business that they had here in Australia at the time. And I made the shift back to, to retail and, and um, you know, I wouldn't, wouldn't be anywhere else. Why do you reckon you stand out? I think that um, yeah, it, it's probably for others to to maybe run a commentary on what they they see their strengths and weaknesses at. Uh, and I think retail yeah. is a, is an industry where you work hard, right? Like you know, yeah. Bunning support office lights up at six six thirty in the morning. I'm sure that most uh, retail support officers do because we want to get in. We want to see yesterday's trading performance. We want to think about the the day ahead. So there's long hours. There's there's that. I think you've got to love love what you do. You know, I work long hours with with Bunnings and and so I should in in the role that I'm privileged to occupy but you know I don't feel like I'm working all the time I feel like I'm experiencing things I'm learning things I'm curious I'm traveling I'm I'm meeting people so it's 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 energizing and I think equally importantly you know there's hundreds if not thousands of people who've kind of seen something in what I've been doing whether it's positive attitude taking a risk taking opportunity doing a job that other people didn't want to do you know like years and years and years ago working at Target store as a casual you got paid on the shifts that you went to work for, right? You didn't get paid, you know, when you weren't at work. So uh, if someone wanted me to, to sweep the back dock or load the skip bin or move stock around in the warehouse, I was, I was happy to do it because I was happy for the money. I was learning skills along the way. I probably didn't consciously think of that at the time. Um, you know, when an opportunity came up to, to move out of metropolitan Sydney and move out to Dubbo in 1993 and help open a Target store, there wasn't a huge queue of people that wanted to do it. And, you know, I said, why not? I'm, I'm young, I'm single, go live in the country for a while. You know, it, yep. was, a, it was a different experience moving around and, and, and doing things when maybe other people didn't want to do it. You, put your, you gave yourself every opportunity to succeed and you needed people in your personal life, partners, family, friends, kids who would be prepared to sacrifice, uh, but also those leaders that would take a chance on you. And, and I have a strong a very strong mindset today of trying to pay that forward and giving other people opportunities, whether it's someone who reaches out randomly on, on LinkedIn and says, hey, can I at least have a chat to someone about a job? It's just as easy to pass those details on as it is to say no or not, or not reply. And I, I've always tried to have that as a, as a mantra. And, you know, I think, to be really honest, there's, there's always going to be an element of good luck. You know, I think whether that's serendipity and being in the right place at the right time with the right skills or 
being the person around when the boss looked around for someone to do something, I think there's always going to be an element of that. And, you know, I think that combination of hard work, liking what you do, being surrounded by good people, that's a happy cocktail of, of fuel for um, making your career a successful one. Any wisdom along the way? Some some good advice that is really stuck beside you? <laughs> yeah, it normally comes in the form of constructive feedback. So some of that, some of that, given the generation of leaders I worked under, some of the language is probably not um, 2022 uh, to correct. But I, I think everyone sort of says, don't be afraid to make mistakes. I think that is important. And I think ultimately learning from them, you know, some of the best feedback I've ever been yeah. given has been where my performance you know, wasn't as strong as it could be, or you've let people down because behavior attitude maybe wasn't on, on the mark where it needed to be. So I think I've always learned from that. The other thing that, you know, I think this is an important attribute for leaders full stop is that, you know, gut feeling comes from, I think, a combination of your experiences and your value set, you know, and, and for me, values like honesty and integrity, and everyone says the same thing. So, you know, I'm sure it's the case, but if you hold those things true to you and you then complement that with the experiences and my career has been a little bit of a patchwork quilt, you know, if you those that know what I've done over the years of working in operational roles, HR roles, finance roles, you know, those sorts of things have been in my mind. So you end up with a few different lenses through which you're thinking about or solving, you know, problems and then you overlay that with your value set. That's what I, I call gut instinct. And I think some of the, the best decisions have been where I've said, no, I'm going to let that opportunity go past. You know, that's been, um, you know, at times opportunities to consider a new job in a new business. Uh, and I think that's where you've got to have people around you who you can confide in and get good advice from as well, you know, who sort of know you well enough to sort of speak truth to you and sort of go, is that really you? Is that is that a good fit? Or that actually sounds exactly like the sort of thing that you, you'd you love to do. So why don't you get in and, and go for it? And I think the real art is what you say, what you say no to more so than what you say yes to. When did you make your move to Bunnings? Joined Bunnings in August 2005. So touched on the fact that I was working yep. for the warehouse group. Um, warehouse group decided to divest their Australian assets. They were able to sell them into a private equity business that were merging a few discount, uh, deep discount department businesses together. I did have an opportunity to stay with them, but the way the role was described to me was was such that you know probably didn't have the appeal. I love seeing people get jobs and creating jobs and there was going to be a lot of work, as often happens in a turnaround, where, where a lot of jobs are shared and assets sort of exited and those sorts of things. So that didn't feel like a fit for the sort of leadership that, that I wanted. And I'd been a bit involved in my years at, at Westpac with some org restructuring and doing redundancies and those things. So it didn't have an appeal. But I was, uh, you know, in my mid-30s, had two young kids, had a mortgage, had school fees to pay. So I needed a job. And, um, you know, through a recruiter I work with, became aware of um, a role at Bunnings. It was a state manager role in, in New South Wales and came on board in, in 2005. And having had a couple of jobs over the years that had sort of gone four, five years, four, five, six years, figured here's the next four, five, six years uh, of my career. I'll, I'll be at Bunnings. I didn't know a huge amount about the business and knew, knew their size and scale, but um, didn't spend a lot of time in their stores because there wasn't one near to where I was living at the time. But in I went. And 17 and a bit years later, here I am. So I've obviously gone against the grain of what I'd done traditionally. But, you know, after the first six, 12 months at Bunnings, I found somewhere I could put down roots and grow and um, felt connected to the team and have loved almost every minute of my time at, at Bunnings. You have your, your great days and your average days. But for me, it's a place I feel I can do the very best work that I can possibly do and and do that in a way that is is also being the best version of myself. And I think that's a, a very happy coincidence. Managing Director, 2016. Yep. 
classic question. It's a tough, it's a tough gig to be appointed amongst your peers. Yeah, I'm sure there's some others out there who are very competitive, and then suddenly they've got to work with you or report in whatever way you want to structure it. Are you ready for the role? No, absolutely not. Um, and I think like a lot of lot of people that come into leadership roles like this, you probably have a period of imposter syndrome. I mean, I'd work with some incredibly talented executives. I'd work for. Uh, incredibly talented executives and, you know, those those big shoes to fill syndrome absolutely kicks in. You know, one of the great qualities of the leadership team that I was a part of today, and in fact, the leadership team I have today is the the collegiality of, of the team. And I think that when you're given the opportunity to lead, you have to also earn the right to lead. You know, and I think, you know, in Bunnings, we've got leadership principles there, their integrity, respect, teamwork, achievement, innovation. And the first two, integrity and respect, for me, are an equation. If you add them together, you get trust. And I think if you can, if you can establish that trust with your colleagues uh, and some of the people on our leadership team, you know, six and a bit years later, the same executives that uh, were on the executive team back in in 2016, some have retired and, and moved on to other parts of the group or or done other things. But you know, we've got strong personal connection. Um, we have robust conversation for sure. But you know, if it comes back to common respect for one another and and trust, then you know you earn the right to you earn the right to lead, and uh, I think that's something that that that's important. And I had that opportunity in 2007 when I moved from state to, to national. I, I ended up leading the same team I'd been a part of, and you, you learn from things that worked really well, and, and things if you had a second opportunity to lead a team you'd been a peer of in a different way, and you apply those in, you apply those learnings. And you know I've been incredibly privileged and fortunate to be person that leads the team at, at Bunnings, it's a brand that we're incredibly proud of. It's a team we love being a part of, you know, and we have fun every day. So when you were given the role, you, you know, you, you go home that night, you probably sit down and get a pen and paper or whatever you're going to do. And probably like most uh, good leaders, you're thinking ahead, what, when the day I'll walk out, what's going to be that imprint? What's going to be that legacy? In that mind that night or the next couple of days, what was going through your head? Don't stuff up was the first thought that, that came to mind because, as I said, you know, it was I was coming in behind an incredibly strong uh, managing director. I did have, you know, truthfully, I had a little bit of time because, as some would recall, we bought a business in the in the UK and um, my predecessor moved into a sort of a, a group CEO role. Um, so I, I was able to continue to work with my colleagues in a slightly different way. So in some ways, I had a little bit of warning that the, the role was coming. So I had a bit of time in, in late 2015 to... Uh, turn my mind to what what that would look like, but you know when I think about legacy, and I think that um, I don't think a lot about legacy because I'm I'm really interested in making sure that a team of the business is performing well today, and we've got a clear strategic plan for three, four, five years down the track. But you know, there's a lot of things that I can't control, uh, and you you learn to accept those. You know, in a role like this, you know, one of them is what customers are going to want a decade from now. You know, I, I'd love to be walking into a Bunnings a decade from now and seeing a, a vibrant business, but there'll be products that are being sold that haven't been invented yet. There are products we sell today that weren't invented a decade ago. There'll be categories that we're participating in that uh, we don't participate in today because customer needs change, services and uh, experiences that customers are looking for. But I can influence culture. Uh, and culture comes to the people we recruit the training, the systems, the development, the way we listen and connect and engage with our team. And to me, you know, hopefully this example will, will make sense. But I grew up in a, a little fibro house in Sydney and my uncle still lives in it. Mum and dad have passed away. They passed away a few years ago. My uncle still lives in the house I grew up in. I walk into that house, it still feels like home. Everything is different. The room I, I had as a child, the room my brother had as a child, the kitchen's been remodeled, all these things, it still feels like home. 
And I think if in 10 years' time I walk into a Bunnings and it feels the same way it does today, whether the team is still wearing a red shirt and an apron or racking's red or we're selling all home improvement products or something else, but it still feels the same way and there's a barbecue out the front or there's friendly, helpful team, then the culture will have lived on. I'll have, I'll have done the thing that I set out to do, which is keep a strong and vibrant culture, strong and vibrant. And if that happens, our team are happy and engaged. And if our team are happy and engaged, chances are our customers are. And if our customers are happy and engaged, the business will be performing well and the rest will, will take care of itself. Well, you touched on about the, um, the future thinking. With regards to technology, smart technology, um, maybe people aren't buying these houses as much as they used to. Maybe that may change. What does future thinking look like? Yeah, there's lots of different things. Where do we have a natural right to play? You know, if you think about the physical home, you know, we, we see that, you know, you know we, we drive home every day. But, you know, increasingly Australians and New Zealanders are, are towing parts of their home around the country, you know, the mobile home. What can we do in terms of, you know, fit out and maintenance of that? How do we service the whole family? Do we service just the humans in the house? Can we service the, you know, pets or some of the pets in the house? There's lots of different ways we think about things. You touched on home automation, that's going to continue to evolve. I think it's going to become far more integrated. Our, our generation, you know, the biggest tech change was, you know, tape to disc or, or um, you know, the winner between VHS and, and Betamax. I think there'll be some winners in the home improvement, in the home automation space. I think there'll be some platforms that emerge as preferred, whether that's, you know, being driven by Google or, or Amazon or, or whoever it is. And I think as that that sort of becomes a more normed element of how we use technology in our homes, that will only grow. You know, at the moment, um, you know, I've got six or seven different apps for using technology, the watering system, the lighting system, the, the oven and the microwave, the alarm system, the lights. I can see all that integrating into, into, one, into one platform. Then, then I think home automation really takes off. Building materials, the way we build our homes will change to make them more environmentally sustainable, to use less energy. All these sorts of things will continue to evolve. And our teams are out scouring the world all the time, looking at those products, going to trade fairs, talking to suppliers to make sure that we do stay at the cutting edge of that. So we do stay relevant for our customers, not only in the products that we offer, uh, but the services that complement that and the knowledge of our team members to sell the products as well. And the impact of was it Generation Z, what's, what's that looking like? Yeah, it's an exciting time, right? This is a generation that are growing up, you know, completely interconnected. You know, I got, I got, I got two of them that call me dad. So, you know, I got a front row seat to sort of what what life looks like through through their eyes to some extent. But they're staying at home with with parents longer. When they are moving out, they're moving into shared accommodation. Housing's expensive. They're they're buying homes a little bit later in life. They're starting families. But the aspiration, the research tells us, the aspiration to own. Their own home is still still strong, not only in Australia but but in other parts of of the world. Introducing them to DIY is changing. You know, when I when I first started doing odd jobs around the house, you know, the very first job that that paid me a, any sort of living was mowing my neighbour's lawn. You know, you used a two straight lawnmower, you had to you had to know how to sort of you know clean the spark plug and change the blades. Yeah, my boy, if I can talk my kids into mowing the lawn for me today, they're plugging a battery and pressing a button. The the foundational DIY skills are actually changing. So yeah, right. you know, even what kids use in woodwork or metalwork or or any of those sorts of things, the sort of tools they're using, you know, the the tools we used at you know using woodwork were all were all hand tools and and maybe a, a, a you know a big a big bench drill or something like that. You know, today it's all battery operated. So you know the foundational skills are changing and introducing that next generation to DIY is coming through 
craft, it's coming through recycling furniture, it's coming through gardens where you're growing your own food, those sorts of things. So we're bringing that generation through in a in a different way. Uh, and we connect to them very differently. We connect to them socially. We've got a, an extensive YouTube channel. We've got thousands of videos on our YouTube channel. We had, I think in 2021, we had about 640, 642,000 hours of YouTube content consumed, a lot of that by that next generation, you know, and we connect to them through social media. And we have millions of views on TikTok. We have thousands of views on Instagram and, and Facebook. So we want to be where our customers are uh, and earn the right to be chosen no matter of their age. And the customer experience, it never never ends. What happens here? Where's the juxtaposition? There's someone, as you said earlier, has been around the block, been there and done it as a builder, a plumber, tiler, et cetera, or, or am I going to go online? Where, where do you see it playing in the next 10, 15 years? Uh, is, that, is that model going to – is it going to completely change? Is it going to change dramatically? What what do you see? It, it is it is going to change. You know, like the If I think about my, my first experiences of hardware and home improvement were uh, – well, I think it's a thrifty link hardware store now in Cox's Road in, in North Ride in, in Sydney. It, it'd be the size of a shoebox, but it's morphed to become, you know, large, large warehouses. Um, it's, it's, it's morphed to become in-home design and consultancy for kitchens and bathrooms and, and gardens. Uh, it's morphed to on-site for tradies. It's, it's morphed to, to in the palm of your hand or on your desktop or your, your tablet for online shopping. Uh, it's it's really anywhere that you want to go, and you'd imagine that you know that will continue with optical software, you know, glasses, those sorts of things. So, once upon a time, you went to the store. Today, Bunnings, you can shop online, you can shop in store, you can shop in home, you can shop with people in your home supporting you. Shop on the phone. You can where where a customer wants to be is where we want to be, and we want to be relevant relevant to their customer. We want to be inspiring and informing before a customer shops. You know, doing their product comparisons. They might secure core part of their project online and, and pick it up in store and then shop for the rest of that product with the in-store experience. They might want everything you know delivered to home. We have over a million deliveries to our customers every year across our consumer and, and commercial business. So you know, we just want to be earn the right to be chosen wherever a customer wants to shop with us. And, and you're experimenting with the labs? That's worked out well? Yeah. Look, we're, we're experimenting with lots of different centers and concepts. And you know, I think that if you're not playing around in these spaces early on, you're not learning, you're not, you're not having the failings that you need to, to take to be able to actually, you know, understand where it's at. And, and we've got some strong collaboration with, with global peers. And we've got a really strong relationship with a South American home improvement chain called Sodomac, a German home improvement chain called Hornbach, strong relationships yes. with businesses like, you know, Home Depot and Leroy Milan. This is important because, you know, we're learning from the things that they're doing. They're learning from us and you know, all of that's allowing us to be um, competitive and relevant for our customer. Talk about learnings. What was the learnings for a company which had nothing but success when you embarked on your on the opportunity in the UK? What was the big learnings from that experiment? Yeah, it was a challenging, yeah, a really challenging time you know, for the business. I think there'd been a lot of competitive activity, you know, here in Australia and we saw an opportunity. I think there is there are a couple of markets in a, in in the world where a retailer like Bunnings could be successful. UK's one, United States is one. Clearly the competitive dynamic in somewhere like the US with Home Depot, Lowe's, Menards makes it almost insane to even contemplate going there and and that's why we we categorically don't contemplate going to the US. But UK is different. You know, there's a strong connection with the home. Homebase had an established network of over 250 stores. You know, it was good from a connection to the customer. But I think the scale of turnaround and the way that, you know, we needed to bring customers on the journey for the UK was, you know, a bridge too far for us. I think we probably 
you know, underestimated the, the scale of turnaround. And I think what we've been successful at doing over a long time at Bunnings is running uh, here in Australia is running a successful business and iterating that success with incremental improvement over time. And with the UK, it was a turnaround. And what we did was we took a team of really talented executives and asked them to take take on a turnaround and they didn't have that that turnaround uh, skill set. Uh, and that was that was one of the one of the challenges. And you know, I think the other learning for us is, you know, when you've got the tyranny of distance that you have and the really significant, you know, time zones, that ability to sort of undertake quite radical sort of surgery on a business is is quite complicated. So, you know, the decision to exit, you know, which is you know heading to five years ago now, you know, wasn't an easy decision that we took, but it was the right decision for our shareholders, the right decision for the team. The team that run home base in the UK today are doing an incredible uh, job. We've got a great connection and relationship to them. The, the MD and CFO were people that we recruited and, and put into the business. And I'm really proud of um, the hard work that they've put in and the success that they're starting to see come through. And I'm really excited by the the road ahead for our business here in Australia and New Zealand. You think you're going to go offshore again? I oh, You'd never say never, but I, I see an enormous growth runway. You know, we've got a business here in Australia, we've got a business in New Zealand. We sell quite extensively into neighboring islands and and the pacific we don't think we need a physical presence in those markets that's got its own set of people and supply chain challenges i think you need to find markets where you've got that cultural alignment now i think english as a first language is important and there's not that many parts of the world where where that's the case english is widely spoken but it's not necessarily a first language once you get out of five or six you know major countries around around the world so i think for Bunnings under under my tenure, I've got lots and lots of things I, I can see us doing over the next few years that are going to help us grow in Australia, which is why we made the acquisition of Beaumont Tiles and Adelaide Tools and, and morphing it in, into Toolkit Depot. We see significant opportunities in the commercial space. We're not taking our foot off the accelerator in the co- consumer space with product innovation, using space more effectively, improving the, the in-store and online experience. So plenty for us to do. And that includes looking at the trading market, moving more into that? Absolutely. The trading market's been yeah. good. You know, for for a decade, you know, Bunnings has been if you went back fifteen years, I think, you know, tradies would probably tell you that, that Bunnings was a bit of a also ran when it came to trade and, and didn't really take trade seriously. And I think some of that was is true and, and and fair and for sure we put a lot of emphasis on being, you know, the first choice for, for DIYs. But, you know, slowly but surely our strategy over the last decade has been to to connect, you know, genuinely and sincerely with our trades offer a meaningful account program, offer products and services that are unique to the trades. And we've seen that momentum grow. You know, we've got well over a million online transactions through our PowerPass app every year with our trade customers. We've got uh, hundreds of thousands of small businesses across Australia, and that continues to grow. And the feedback that our tradies are giving us is, that you know, we've got this really strong, compelling offer, very convenient in terms of our physical locations, very convenient in terms of our long trading hours, you know, so many of our trade competitors don't trade Sundays, you know, and, and for many traders, getting ready for the week ahead is is really important. Complementing that with uh, Beaumont Tiles, complementing that with Toolkit Depot means that we access brands and services and selling platforms that make no sense to put in a Bunnings warehouse, but are important for the trades. Uh, and being able to service them through the same account program that they, they use at Bunnings has a enormous appeal to traders, and um, the results have been very, very strong, you know. Commercial now makes up 35, 36% of our revenue. When I started in Bunnings in, in 2005, it was probably 15%. So, you know, yeah, right that's okay. happened with our consumer business growing. It's not like our consumer business stood still. Our commercial business is just growing very, very strongly. And our commercial team are world-class in their field and, and doing incredible work. From 
the formula, lowest prices, widest range, and best experience. That's still the mantra. That's still the mantra. Best best experience is uh, is is new in the sense that we used to say lowest prices, widest range, best service. As we as we widen our offer to go into customers' homes to do more online, we recognise that that you know we we talked about it before, but the way the customers touch and feel and experience the brand has has really widened and it is now an experience. It's not just service delivery in the store, but, you know, for our store teams, best service is still top of mind. We have you know, everything from, you know, acknowledging the customer when, they, when they're around us in the store to providing knowledgeable advice to a really fast checkout experience. That service experience in store is, you know, and has always been and will always be, you know, critical, but we do recognise that the experience is there. You know, ultimately, if you've got a winning offer, you know, we work hard, through our widest widest range and lowest prices strategies to have that winning offer and you have an incredible team delivering that best experience and you do things that that build trust be straight with your customers be straight with your team care for your team live your live your policies um you know work proactively with with regulators and stakeholders to be seen to be trustworthy and and walk the talk not just say nice things and and put little signs up and and then not not live that you know if you're building trust if you get those three elements right then i think long-term successful financial performance is is the outcome and you know that's been our formula for 28 years under the bunnings warehouse um you know shingle and and will be for many years to come so has the basics of retail really changed much you buy stock you move it and you sell it that's that's sort of been the, the mantra for a long time i think customers just have an explosion of choice you know not only choice of where to shop and how to shop but who to shop with brands and businesses that you know once upon a time you had to find a if you're going to be a big brand you needed to find a big retailer to to sort of give you that give you that footprint give you that brand awareness yeah. you and I after this podcast could could sort of sit around over a coffee and and come up with an idea and and go to market on our own and build a successful business right that that didn't happen even five years ago. So the market is intensely competitive and um, that's why you've got to fight hard every day to earn the right to be chosen. So what's the biggest threats in the back of your mind? Um, big threats in the back of my mind? Uh, lot, lots of different things. I think, you know, we're, we're, we're staring into some uncertain economic conditions, you know, off the back of what's been a pretty uncertain time. But that's a cycle, right? You know, we, we've been in business, you know, for 136 years. We've seen booms, busts, depressions, recessions, wars, uh, and a couple of pandemics, right? So, you know, it's not like it, any of it's particularly new. So it's that resilience in your business model to see your way through. I think that, you know, accessing talent is a challenge and I think it would have worked really hard to be a, a great place to work and a place to put down those those roots and grow and, and build a successful career. I think you've got to really listen carefully to what your customers are asking for and adapt and respond, adapt your range, adapt your service offering, constantly focusing on the value proposition so that you're relevant. And I think if you're doing those things, then you give yourself the best shot at being as successful as you can be. You know, if a market is shrinking, we want to shrink less than everyone else. And if a market is booming, we want to be booming more than everyone else. We, our, our goal is to grow the market, grow our share, uh, and, and outperform however the market is is playing. And, you know, if we can do that in a very disciplined and consistent way, try and avoid distractions uh, and avoid the sort of white noise that sort of floats around, then we're going to give ourselves every shot. You mentioned a number of times so far, just in this uh, short interlude roots to grow roots to grow roots to grow put down roots and grow and it struck you as well when you when you started there yeah is that so much different to every other organization in australia i think so um and and look you know it's 17 years in a business you 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 certainly drink a little bit of the kool-aid right that that's that's a that's a given but you know i I talk to, to people around in my peer groups you know it's it's rare for 
people who have been in a job as long as I have. And I, I sit in an executive team where at least five or six of my colleagues have got five to almost 20 years more experience than me in this business. We've got a team member in our WA network in our Claremont store who's had 63, 64 years of service in our business. I get the privilege of writing letters to anyone in our business who's had 30 or more years. Some of my colleagues write letters for people at 5, 10, 15, 20, 25. Came back from leave this week, been on leave for a couple of weeks. Took me, uh, I'd say, honestly, 35, 40 minutes to to sign letters and, and write a few nice words for, for what felt like a quite a, a thick deck of um, letters of people who had 30, 35, 40, 50 years service in the business. I think that is that is unique. And people don't just start at Thursday night, Saturday casual age. We've got people who join us at second, third careers, you know, in their 40s, 50s, 60s and are building 10, 15, 20, 25 year careers in our business. And I think that's 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 something that is is unique, and I think that comes through in the style of people you meet when you walk down an aisle in a budding store. Nearly a third of your team are over the age of fifty. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't see that everywhere else in Australia either, do I? No, I think a lot of places you get to that sort of age, and and you know people start suggesting you you go do other things, particularly in uh, industries where there's a, where there's a bit of manual handling. I used to I used to love rattling off that stat because I wasn't yet fifty, but that that changed last <laughs> year. And um, and now I'm one of that third, but um, I feel very welcome in it. But yeah, I think I think it's just really natural. A lot of people have asked us over time, what are our strategies around that? I think our our hiring managers, our store managers, our our recruiting team, they, they just value the, the life skills and the experience. And what's great is to watch the skills transfer in our stores between workers with a few more laps around the earth than some, you know, taking their life experience and sharing it, and that third party affirmation from an from an older gentleman to a younger gentleman or a an older female team member to a young woman or a young guy about, you know, the things that they can they can learn and equally the skills transfer the other way around tech. I was talking with a with a team member not long ago in one of our stores. He's in his seventies and we run a an enterprise social media platform here called Workplace, which is, you know, effectively Facebook for the workplace. And he had no idea how to work it. And one of the young teams showed him and, you know, suddenly he's talking to his grandkids on on Facebook and Instagram as well. So those those life skill transfers are pretty cool. Are you on the floor on a regular basis? As often as I can be, which isn't isn't as often as I'd like. Quite often on a weekend, I've got a couple of local stores that are that are the luckiest Bunnings on the planet to have the the MD as one of their local customers. The beauty of visiting those stores often is that they get to know you as a person, and and I think that's really important. We we have a very we don't we don't stand on any ceremony. As I said earlier, we take our work seriously, but not ourselves. You know, when we go visit stores. If you didn't know who I was, you know, I'd look the same as every other team in my red shirt, my apron all the pins and badges and, and those sorts of things. And and we want to be able to blend in and serve and we actively serve customers while we're in, in store. And, and that's where you learn things. And I've got a, a rich array of colleagues and, and friends and family members who work across Bunnings. And, you know, you're listening, and you're learning all the time. And if you're not out there talking to customers, talking to team members, then you really will think the world smells like fresh paint. And um, that's a really dangerous place for execs to find themselves. What in your mind then is real leadership? You touched on it a couple, little bit, but you, like you said, you walked into some pretty big boots to fill. Yeah, you had to stand for what you were. So, what's what's your leadership? I put it around four four themes. Conveniently for me, you know, I found four words that all start with the same letter. I call them my four H's. But uh, the first one's honesty. I think in leadership, if you're a straight shooter and you're you're acting with integrity and 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 people believe in you and believe what you say and you back that up with action, so you're walking the talk, then you earn the right to be trusted and people will will follow that leadership even if they don't necessarily like what's happening or 
maybe even believe it's right, but there's a sense of belief and trust. And with that comes a, a responsibility to, to be doing the right things when people aren't watching, uh, which is what integrity is all about. But uh, that is very much about trust. And I, I expect, if not demand, that from the people around me. So that means that you're getting the good news and the bad news. I want bad news to travel much faster than, than even good news in our business so we can learn and address problems and issues as quickly as we can. The second one, I think, speaks to the Bunnings brand. You know, I think Bunnings, you asked me the size and scale of Bunnings you know, earlier on. It's, it's a pretty, pretty large organization. But the most common question I get asked when I say, we're all curious people, right? So you're out somewhere and someone says, where do you work? And I say, I work at Bunnings. And I'm proud to say that. I've worked for brands that wasn't quite as proud to say where I work, but with Bunnings, I feel really, really proud. And the next question that almost always follows is which store do you work at? And I think that's a really special thing because that says my connection with your brand is my local store. They don't see, people don't see a big organization. I understand Bunnings is big, but their connection is with their local store. And I think it is that team members that they know, community groups that they can support, almost any Aussie that's had a school-aged child who's played a junior sports, cooked a barbecue, you know, they, they sort of get how that all that all works. And I think that's where that sort of humility comes from. And I think as a business, why we don't take ourselves seriously, you know, as leaders, you know, in terms of titles and hierarchy and all that sort of palaver allows us to sort of keep a pretty pretty humble mindset. You know, I see myself genuinely at the bottom of the organization, not, not the top, so that I can help others to, to be successful. You asked a little bit earlier about, you know, success and, and career and, and all those sorts of things. And I, I'm here today because in 1990, a lady who was a store manager for my target store took a chance on giving me a management traineeship. If she'd ignored that and I'd gone on to do something else, I'd be completely different person doing a completely different thing, right? So we're here because people gave us a chance. You know, I'm here because a hiring manager gave me a job at Westpac. I'm here because a divisional CEO helped me get a job in small business markets. I'm here because a former colleague got me a job at the warehouse group. I'm here because a recruiter I worked with got me a job at Bunnings. I'm here because my boss at the time promoted me. The third H is all about helpfulness. It's paying that forward and recognizing that We've got a responsibility to help young people build great careers, help old people build great careers, help people in, into opportunities, help people to find the next thing to give them them joy, um, because I think that's important. And last but not least, we're, we're all here for a finite period. You know, some of us are lucky to live long, happy, successful lives, and and others that's taken away from them tragically short. And and some people, you just look and go, you're just so unlucky to be where you were when when that happened, right? And we reflected on that at this point in time 20 years ago for, for some of our countrymen in, in, in Bali, right? So if you're not happy, then then get out and find the thing that's going to make you happy because you're going to get to a point in time in your life where you're going to go, you don't get a chance to go, I wish I'd go back and do, or could I go back and do that? You're not going to get that chance. You're going to be faced with some, some pretty tough choices. So, you know, without being morbid, you want to get to the other end of your life and kind of go, I'd much rather get there and go, oh, that was pretty stupid and have a laugh about it than I wish I'd gone off and, and done something. So I think happiness is a pretty important factor. So for me, it's honesty, humility, helpfulness and happiness. And, uh, you know, hopefully those that work around me, um, if you were to talk to them about me, would say, yeah, that that's a fair fair reflection most days of the week about what, what Mike's about. So what do you think what's happening in Australian society at the moment? The conversations I'm having with most chief execs, when you close the door, Productivity's down. Why, why is it down? I'm talking around decision-making, speed of decision-making, getting to my customer, getting revenue up, making sure those relationships are good, bouncing new ideas around, thinking about that, that lab team that I've got, flying off to get the, the people off to Israel, et cetera, and doing some innovation. It's down. And one big challenge I'm having, I can't get people back into the office or get them back into work. And this is consistent message. 
from CEOs across the country. Three days a week, best I can do. What's going on out there in that regard? Because if I was sitting there as a young, if I was a young bloke, I'd be putting my hand up, saying, "I'll work five days a week because I'm going to get, I'm going to get seen. I'm going to do exactly what you did. I want to get that thing done by the time I'm 50, put myself in a good position, and not have any regrets, and not look over my shoulder and think, well, what could I, should I have done? But I'm going to best place myself. But do you think something's missing, or what are your thoughts with regards to Australian society and where where that's at? It's a, it's a great question. Look, I think pre-pandemic, there were some pretty big themes that we were talking about in, in leadership circles, technology and the evolution of technology, drive for flexibility and equality you know, in the workplace. I think the pandemic accelerated those things. You know, if, you, if we'd been talking this time 2019, not, not this time 2022, and you'd said, you know, what jobs at Bunnings could be done from home? Lots could be. And I think retail's got a natural advantage, right? Like we're on the road all the time in our stores. We're out with our suppliers. We're working flexibly anyway. Like I've worked flexibly and remotely for as long as I can remember, and I've got a frequent flyer account to, to sort of validate that. So, yeah. you know, I think retail's maybe a bit, a bit different like that, but I'd have said, you know, a payroll department, that can't work at home because they're, they're dealing with confidential information. Uh, our planning team can't work at home because they need printers that can print A0 and A1 pieces of paper. Guess what? They can all work from home. And we met, we, we bought, I don't know how many laptops in March 2020, and we dispatched hundreds of people home to work from home for extended periods of time. And being a Victorian, you know, we had we had more time at home than, Everyone than else most in the world. of us, right? So, yeah. yeah. So it was a long it was a long slog. So I think people have learnt to work in different ways. Yeah, you know, we're we're encouraging people to come to work for the community and the connection and engagement. But the reality is people want to work in different ways. That's what they're telling us. And if we say to people, Well, the only way to get ahead is be in the office five days a week, or the only way to to, to get ahead is 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 that then I think we're missing something. We've got to find ways to to see people, not just be mm. seen, but to see people and foster connection and engagement. I'm not seeing any productivity loss at Bunnings from working flexibly, but I do think, as I said, retail okay. is different. A lot of our team have to go to work. You know, So mm. the thing that we're mindful of is that our store teams have to pull on a red shirt and have to put on that apron. Our DC teams put on their high vis. They go to the DCs. They've got no choice. They can work full-time, part-time, casual. They can work in different departments. They can work across multiple stores. So there's lots of flexibility, but it's flexibility built around the, the working environment. And we're a store support function. So our store support teams are out in our stores, are in our support centers, are in our supplier yeah, factory. Absolutely. But I think that that's I don't think we go back to a world where we're all in the office five days a week. But I think the idea that productivity is dropping, I think that that comes down to what you're asking people to do and then the framework. And and I talked to some of the CEOs that you probably talked to and yeah. it's it is interesting how we all we all view the world. And yep. some want to see the work and see the output. I've always been a leader that has judged people on the outcome, not the input. But I'm talking about quick ideas, smarts, et cetera. You know, they're coming back and saying, it's slow. It's slow. It's slower than what it used to be. That is output. Yeah. That is the outcome. That, yeah. And I think I think it'll it'll depend on, I think some of that is going to depend on, on industry. I think yeah, some of sure? it is also where demand is. I think the other thing is, don't underestimate the fatigue factor. Right? I'm not. Like, I, I agree think, 100% you know, with you. Well, I do a lot of work in the in the uh, mental health space, right? And it's a pretty fragile community out there. You, know, you, you asked me earlier what governments can be doing. I talked about sort of welfare, yeah. and we see that, right? We see it in yep. we see it in our own team and calls to our our mental health providers. You know, th- those numbers are up. They they vary jurisdiction to jurisdiction, yep. but it's a pretty it's a pretty fragile place. And I think that when you've been at home for long periods of time, and even in the jurisdictions where we weren't asked to be at home, you know, ultimately my Perth team working at home because they're talking to a team in Melbourne who were at home. Not a lot of point, you know, getting in the car in Joondal up, driving to our office in 
East Perth and sitting on a screen staring at someone at home all day, right? You might as well work from home yourself. And, you know, but I do think there's a, there is some fatigue and I think that that's going to take some time to unwind. And I do think that people in some industry sectors and, and in certain communities are going to go, I want to live my life in a different way. And that may well lead to some productivity drain. Mm. The other thing is just that there's sectors that aren't aren't fully back. You know, there's sectors that aren't fully back because they can't resource up. That's true. That's probably dampening demand for services in other industries. So if you're a, you know, you're a business that's not working at full stretch, you know, are you looking for as much output from an auditor? Are you looking as much output from an accountant or a lawyer? Maybe not. So I think that, that this is an interconnected web across, you know, multiple verticals within the economy that will take some time to, to unwind. And I do think that there's a period of time. My working hypothesis is that for a variety of reasons, you know, Australia might be six, 12 months behind other parts of the world. You know, having travelled this year to Israel, to the US, to Canada, to Europe, yep. um, you know, in, in a couple of those markets a couple of different times, yeah. open borders because of the porous nature of the US and, and Europe meant that for 2021, a lot of different parts of the world started to get back on with life. Yep. You know, in Australia, this time a year ago, Melbourne was a very different place to where Melbourne is now, and that was late 2021. Mm. So... When you when you think about it, we've got some more time still ahead of us to sort of to, to sort of re renormal. It's great to have everyone back at a NRL or AFL grand final. It's going to be great to watch a full crowd at the Melbourne Cup. It was great to see, you know, the Aussie Open at the start of the year, you know, reasonably back to normal. But yeah. they're moments in time, and people have clearly learnt very. You know, they say it takes three months to to learn new behaviours. We've had two years of that so there's there's behaviors that have been built in and learned they're going to take time to unwind and i think as leaders we're going to be teasing and coaxing and encouraging some of those traditional skills back out and then learning new skills and learning new ways to get productivity gains i'd also argue that once upon a time we'd have sat in a studio together to have this this um, oh no brilliant we can do this right yeah 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 Yeah, it's fantastic and I'm more productive because I can do this because I didn't have to fly to Sydney. You didn't have to fly to Melbourne. I don't have to go from one side of town mm. to the other. But that might mean that, you know, I get home an hour earlier today than I would have once upon a time sitting around Sydney Airport waiting for my for my flight to inevitably delay, mm. be delayed back to Melbourne, right? And those sorts of things are giving us some, some other gains. So there, I think there are some swings and roundabouts. And I also think it's just going to take some time to, to get to a point where um, – we, we feel we've found the the next normal. I don't think it's a new normal. I think it's the next the next normal. Yeah, okay. A couple of sort of hypotheticals to throw to you as a, a business leader in Australia. So there's been a strong argument to, as you said, flexible working three days a week. But at the same time, it's getting disseminated all day long about mental well-being. And I agree with you about fatigue. As a CEO and as a leader, and if we're supposedly caring about our people, and you think about when you're a younger person, are you better served being at home, looking at the four walls with your mate down the corridor doing the same stuff from his laptop or her laptop, or are we better getting them into the office or getting them back on, again, retail is different, right? More broader discussion, getting people back in where they're socially engaged, socially challenged, mentally challenged, and feeling a part of something, and maybe they won't have these issues long-term that we're talking about. It just seems to be a very strong argument about mental wellness, but at the same time, if you can bring them back to bring them back in, I agree, it may not be five days a week, but are we missing a trick here and hearing the other side of the argument? That's the first part. The second part, which is coming at me, which is interesting, senior executives are saying because people are staying at home more, the workload is increasingly heavier on burdened on them. 
and they're really feeling it about your fatigue you're talking about. I'm really feeling it. I'm really feeling it hard because I'm picking up. These people aren't coming necessarily back. They're well known in the organization. They know everybody in the organization. They rely on that, but they've somehow forgot many years ago, as you said rightly, many years ago, someone took them under their wing. They're not necessarily doing that. There's a bit of selfishness being played out there. There's interesting dynamics at the moment, Michael. Just sort of, you know, have you seen that across the, I guess, across the sort of the, um, the landscape? Yeah, the, the answer is probably all, all of the above. Like, I think, you know, the way we've sort of said to talk to our team is, you know, we'd love to see in the office five, six days a fortnight, right? So firstly, we, we widen the, the lens, right? Sort of, and then we define fortnight as 14 days because, you know, people do live their lives in, in really different ways. And remember, we've had two years of being told, stay home, um, you know, and, and it's and it varies market to market, but we've pretty much been told. So, so we've had, what's that, eight behavioral cycles of being told to work a different way. So if we, if we work to the assumption it takes three months to, to build a behavior, we've had eight of those cycles where we've had that behavior reinforced. So it might take eight, 10, 12 cycles to undo it, maybe more, maybe never will get undone. For some people, Working at home means they're not getting up at five o'clock in the morning, sitting on the Monash freeway for an hour and a half to get to the office, to sit in a cubicle and not talk to anyone all day, to sit on a car and go home. Some people are sitting at home, staring at a blank wall, being unproductive. Are, are some people being unproductive and stealing time? Possibly. Love to think that there's no one in the Bunnings team that's that, that's doing that. But the reality is there are other people who are going, you know what, I've got three hours back in my day where I can exercise, I can spend a bit more time helping my kids with the homework, I can eat a bit better because I'm not worrying about running down to the canteen and and, and finding something for lunch. There's going to be swings and roundabouts for, for executives. It's what's the environment you're creating? What are the expectations around output are you creating? I think if you're really clear on deliverables and those sorts of things, for me personally, and I think every exec is different, I couldn't give a Tinker's cuss where you work because yeah, I've got right now I've got people working in Europe I've got people working in the US I've got people in parts of Asia I've got people in New Zealand because because we've sent them there to do work right I've got to I've got to have that trusting environment but I've got to have clear KPIs and, and clear measures but you know what we do do is if we see that team aren't coming to work at all we're working with them and understanding why and then getting them back into the workplace but when they're here we're making sure we're doing things with them that are actually letting us as executives see them, understand their skills, spend that quality time talking to them to understand the potential, taking them under our wing to be able to give them the development, and in in doing so, making that rewarding. We've equally got people who could not wait to get back to the office five days a week. We've got plenty of people who couldn't wait because they're living in a shared house. They've got absolutely no desire to sit there and and listen to their flatmates' Zoom call all day. They They want to be at work. So I think it's... The, the, the challenge is it's, it's there's no one size fits all. And that's the hard part as leaders is that it'd be much easier if we could have everything in a box, black and white, 8 o'clock Monday to 5 o'clock Friday. Unfortunately, I think the world was already moving there and we've been hyper-accelerated into it. But from a Bunnings point of view, and it's really the only lens I'm qualified to comment on, we're really fortunate that we've got a committed team who I haven't I haven't missed a beat. We've not missed a range review. We've not missed a supplier engagement. We've not missed a new product or new store launch where I've got, oh, it's because people are at home and they're, they're bumming around not doing things. In fact, it's the opposite. I probably worry a little bit that some of my team who are working at home are burning the candle at, at both ends. And for a lot of us, particularly in the last couple of years, working from home became living at work. And I think that's a really unhealthy 
uh, a really, really unhealthy place to be as well because sometimes it's just hard to go, you know what, I'm done for the day. Going to go walk the dog or, or whatever. It was just easier to stay stay working. So, yeah. Challenges. Again, we're talking about the economy, inflation, interest rates, supply chain. Is the supply chain going to level out roughly by Christmas globally? Are we getting close to that now? Oh, whether it's Christmas or sometime into 2023, it, it will moderate. We're starting to see a bit more normalisation in shipping now. So it would appear there's a bit more consistency in China with factory opening and, and closures and port opening and closures with the, the changes in lockdown policies. There were obviously source, you know, from all around the globe and it, it has been difficult, but it is starting uh, staying in moderate, I think inflation, you know, will will cycle through over time. You know, it's, there's been hyperinflation in the categories that we operate in, like timber and and steel, that are yeah. starting to moderate. Um, there's some moderation in source materials in other places. So, again, it's a cycle, right? And 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 we will we will work our way through the cycle. It is going to be challenging for us as a as an EDLP retailer. We're, we are well placed to offer a strong value proposition to. To customers at, at an entry price point or, a, or at a more um, discretionary price point if that's where where customers want to go but i think that there's more ahead of us i think there's some genuine challenges uh, geopolitically i think that you know here in australia we are really insulated from some of the things that we see in europe i went to a uh, a home improvement network conference in copenhagen in i think it was may or june and for, for our European colleagues, you know, the threat of conflict is 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 very real, right? And and we're a little bit insulated from those things. So I think there's there's a lot of different things going on. So it brings you back to what what can we control? We can control the care and well-being of our team. We can, to some extent, control our inventory position. We can control the quality and, and pricing of our offer. Sticking to those basics, you know, is, is what we need to do. And 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 as best as we can insulate ourselves from some of the noise that, that sits around that or we can go off and be distracted by that and if we do then we're, we're drawn away from the the primacy of our offer and i think if if that's the case then we lose the right to be chosen by our customers no fair enough but a big point is consumer confidence where, where are you seeing that at the moment the sector we operate in is a mix of necessity necessity and discretionary spend across b2c and, and b2b so we've got a pretty broad lens on on the community there's clearly a little bit of a flight a flight to value we we, we we call that out, um, you know, at our, at our full year results. Um, we can see on the commercial side, you know, still a lot in the pipeline. There's contracts that are being committed to. There's still the last stages of government stimulus, home builder, those sorts of programs. That's still to sort of flow through the market. You know, ultimately for us, people are going to, if it's expensive to be going out to the movies and, and going and eating out, you're going to eat at home, you're going to do more things at home. But equally, We've all learned a whole lot of new DIY skills the last couple of years, and we've all put more into our homes and our gardens and our home offices than we ever have before, and that needs maintenance. So all these things sort of are favourable, but equally, we've got unusual climatic conditions. You know, it's, it's going to be pretty wet wet over summer. It's, it's not the first year this has happened, and mm. we, we'd much rather the sun be shining every day and, and it rain between about, you know, 10 p.m. and, and 2 a.m. every morning. That would be about perfect for us. That's never, never going to happen, of course. So um, you have to work your way through, which, again, brings you back to a core value proposition of I've got things that are relevant for my customer at a, at a price point that they want in a service, giving them a service experience that, that is rewarding for them and make the most of that. The power of marketing. Can you share some, some insights how that's changed during your career in retail? It's gone from mass marketing to mass niche, I think. Eyeballs are going to different places. You know, eyeballs, live TV, you know, continues to, to sort of not be as strong as it was. You know, you and I grew up in a world where there were four TV channels, right? That's so right. there's yeah. four billion of the things now. And 
generations that go to YouTube and, and TikTok for their news rather than, you know, the Herald Sun or the Sydney Morning Herald. So eyeballs are changing and, and the spend shifts accordingly. And we're, and we're moving to what I would call mass niche or mass personalization where we're finding segments of customers that we can talk to through live sport, whether it's through social media, those sorts of things. It's constantly reinforcing the brand proposition, the value proposition of certain products and finding the ways to encourage and inspire customers to to shop. If all you'd ever done was put a full page ad in the newspaper every week, your audience would be getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And I think that's why all businesses and advertising agencies and the media themselves are continuing to evolve you know, their offerings so that we can stay connected and, and, and relevant to, to customers. You know, ads turn up on gaming sites. You know, you can be playing a, you know, a video game at the moment and you, you'll see brands on there. So, you know, brands will adapt and evolve as, as customer needs change and evolve. But in you know, marketing and the power of marketing is still really important. But the tailoring to your voice, your taste, your interest, I think that's going to continue to to accelerate over time till we get to a point where we have audience groups of one. Now, that that's not going to happen tomorrow, but I think we get to one or very small, very small sectors. And the way that, you know, our data footprints that we leave behind are, are sort of, you know, there to be marked and understood. And marketers are going to be able to, to tailor those offers pretty succinctly, I imagine. What do you guys glean from that when you think about the next steps in marketing? If you're a flybys customer, yep. you know, we've got a we've got a lens on 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 what you shop. We understand that and we can, you know, over time form a bit of a view. We've thought about the lifetime mm. connection a customer has with us for a long, long time before before marketing. There's a there's a Harvard professor, his name's El Sassery, wrote a great book called The Service Value Chain. Okay. Um, and it talks about the lifetime value of the customer and we understand that people are engaging with us from before they can shop. And when we're painting our kids' faces, giving them a snag, or they're going for a pony ride in our car park, you know, there's, yeah. an, there's an engagement with the brand. Yep. You know, at a point in time, you're spending a lot with us as a first home buyer, fitting out your home, doing your garden. There'll be a point in time where all you're doing is buying a packet of screws and maybe nothing. You just came in for the snag on a, on a Saturday morning. What we want is every interaction to be valuable because what we see is that over 30, 40, 50, 60 years of shopping with us, there's a relationship and we want that relationship and connection. So at a young age, we've got to be relevant. You know, at the back end of your life, we, we have people coming in from nursing homes. They, they carve hebel bricks. They make macrame pot plant holders. They pot plants. There's no sale there. We're not interested in the sale. We're interested in the connection and the participation in the brand and the fact that you know that mum or dad is getting an outing to Bunnings in a nursing home. That's got a, that's got a positive connection for you with the brand and it's a good thing for us, a good thing for the community and a, and a good thing for the team who who have that experience with those people in our stores. Is there any particular uh, retailers you you look at and examine very, very closely who do lead uh, in certain aspects regards to the engagement of customer? Look, we are students of the world. And I think, you know, if we brought all home improvement retailers from around the world to Australia, they'd all claim ownership of a bit of a Bunnings warehouse in terms of, of, of a different attribute. And I think I like that's that. the early Bunnings warehouse, you know, is a pretty heavy copy paste of, Home Depots, and I think it, it really resonated with the Australian consumer and, and community and, and the execs that were a part of that, I think, played an important role in, in bringing that offer in, into the market. You know, equally, you know, the transition in 2018, 2019, 2020 to omni-channel retailing, you know, it was really important for us to be able to have an offering that was relevant for consumers when they couldn't come into our stores and, and shop, which happened here in, in Victoria and over in, in New Zealand as well. And for people who were older and unwell, not wanting to go out and go in the public, being able to shop online, I think was a, was another really important um, step. But, you know, for me, it's all about just that that relevance and, and that connection. And, and that's how we sort of think about things. Last couple of questions. 
significant workforce. How do you, as, a, as an executive or as a leader, sorry, how do you engage? I know you, I know you taught your four, your four points. I understand all that. But how do you actually communicate and get the message across? Because culture begins from the top and works its way down. How do you do it? Yeah, lots of different, lots of different ways. So um, we, I touched on the fact we have an enterprise social media platform, Workplace. We've had that now since 2017, 2018. We've got about 48,000, about 55,000 team on, on Workplace. We do live streams. So it'd be something, you know, I'm sitting in one of our two studios here in our national support center in, in Melbourne. We, we do live streams. We beam live. I get oh, probably a dozen direct messages through the chat function every week from team members, you know, anywhere in Australia, New Zealand. It can be a curiosity question like, you know, am I allowed to wear a certain color boot or I'm not sure I need to go to get this question answered to, I don't, I don't think I've been treated fairly. How do I get some help and support through to, hey, loved what we, you know, loved you being in our store last week. Here's a couple of photos. We, we get on the road. We spend time with our team in stores. We run uh, activities and listening posts with our teams. We have uh, conferences, we have get-togethers, we bring people into our support centres. It is really important to be out there and and be be active and be present. But also, it's it's driving that behaviour with my leadership team, driving that behaviour with our senior leaders, our area managers, our regional managers. You know, leadership's a contact sport, right? You can't do it from behind a desk. You can't do it from behind a camera. You've got to be out there talking to your team, which is what made 2021 frustrating. And you know, even then, every time our borders opened, I was out. I went to the Territory, I went to Tasmania, I went to WA, I went to New Zealand. Anywhere you could get out and go and, and spend time with team. A great day for me is a day in a red shirt and an apron. A great day for me is in a factory with a supplier in, in China or US or, or wherever I can get to. Uh, a great day is with you know, a group of our team sitting around a table here in, in the office having a chat. What's not a great day is sitting, staring at spreadsheets and doing the, the management work. If I can avoid any of that, then and I can listen to team, I'll get 100 times more out of that than I will out of you know, most other things. And I guess that other part, rolling that into the supplier relationship is absolutely central as well, isn't it? Yeah, I, I'd, I'd see oh, five, six suppliers every week. Sometimes it's over a bite to eat or a glass of wine. Sometimes it's, you know, in a range review or a presentation at their office or factory, you know. We've seen some incredible things, you know, been in in, um, in the US, in factories. I've been out in farm paddocks watching um, big rod on mowers at work. I've been in paint manufacturing plants. I've been in a kitchen manufacturer and you know watching some really bespoke packaging that, that's taking a whole lot of waste out of the out of the, the supply chain you're learning all the time and, and you're picking those ideas up bringing them back sharing them encouraging other people to do things and equally peer retailers you know we had a couple of fantastic days in what was it april may in uh, in uh, toronto with home depot canada great time in in uh, europe with a specialist tool business in in vienna if you look back at your time at bunnings what story or what action or what event moved you the most? I said, gee, that's Bunnings. There's lots and lots. You know, I think it's, it's, it's whether you're out with a community activity or you're sitting with a team member listening to their. I, I was at, where was I, earlier this year, February this year, Yapoon in far north Queensland. I was talking to two team members. We've got, we've got an interesting travel policy, uh, interesting employment policy, which we call the grey nomad policy. So yeah, we, we've got a policy where team members can actually tow their caravan around Australia and work in different bunning stores. They go into a, into a pool, they can contact the local store. This couple had worked in, I think they were up to their 13th store. Oh, um, okay. They were, you know, working at Yapoon, doing the store opening. You know, just listening to that story was, was incredible. Or someone will reach out and this, this story goes back a couple of years, but we had a, a family in Queensland where, where a young child was very, very ill. 
uh, and they need to come to Melbourne for treatment. They're going to be staying at Ronald McDonald House. Got a, I got a note from them when they went back to Queensland to talk about their experience, their store and a store in Melbourne. So no, no, no one senior particularly involved in it. They worked out how they could help that family, the team member who was working in our Queensland store, transfer and work in a Melbourne store, so that they could keep earning earning money and going to work every day while while their partner and child were being cared for at the children's hospital. And all that store rallied around and, and cooked meals and, and did things for, for that family while they were there. And that was quite early in my time. I was in a national the national operations role. And the first question I ask is, how did we organize that? Who made that happen? Who did you talk to? Because I was curious. I wasn't wasn't challenging. It was like, oh no, we just made it happen. And I and and to me that's emblematic of of the sort of can do. We're a DIY business, right? So we get things done. Like that's the that's the essence. And yeah, we empower our team to do those things. And and for every one of those stories, there's there's hundreds, if not thousands, more. So there is no one single moment. But there are moments where you realize you're really, really lucky. You know, we did a conference for our team. This year, I think we had 16, 17, 1800 people down at Rod Laver Arena in on Centre Court. And, you know, you get to stand up in front of a sea of red shirts and you kind of go, you know, I'm probably the luckiest CEO that's that's walking around anywhere in Australia at the moment. What's the role of West Farmers? They're an owner and shareholder. Um, so I'm a, I'm a member of the West Farmers leadership team. We've got a divisional board that, that our group CEO, Rob Scott, chairs and our uh, group CFO, Anthony, Anthony Giannotti, is a, a, a member of. Um, they're they're our allocator of capital. They help us with things like audit. They help us with all the corporate corporate governance. But other than that, they they tend to stay out of the way and let us run our business as though we were our own. So we sort of have a little bit of our cake and eat it too, right? We're we're sort of you know this big, diverse, almost a mini conglomerate with our different brands in our own right. But we don't have to deal with the market. We don't have to deal with some of those things. And we're really fortunate. And I'm really fortunate to be surrounded by a group of leadership team executives who are. Who are incredible, uh, incredibly talented, um, and really support us to to drive value, because in, rec- in they recognise in in driving value, and and bearing in mind Bunnings is is a significant part within the West Farmers Group. Absolutely, uh, we're yeah. we're doing the right thing by by the West Farmers shareholder, and most most team at Bunnings are West Farmers shareholders, so we feel a strong sense of uh, partnership and ownership in our parent company. And what what's next for Bunnings, Michael? Oh, I think there's there's lots. You know, I'm excited by you know some of the uh, over the next 12 18 months, our customers will see some new categories and ranges. We'll see some okay. uh, new new store formats. We'll we'll see the expansion of Beaumont Tiles into into Western Australia and the transformation of a number of their stores. We'll see Toolkit Depot hit the east coast of Australia and then then head over into into New Zealand. We'll see uh, innovations in our uh, PowerPass account program. There, there's lots in store, and I think that's. That energy and excitement I felt as a 16, 17-year-old pushing trolleys and punching checkouts in in a target store that no longer exists in Chatswood in, in New South Wales is, is alive and, and real in the floors I walk in, Bunnings support centres and Bunnings stores I walk in today. And that's what helps me jump out of bed at a fairly early hour every morning to, to get in and have a heap of fun. Yeah, you're up pretty early from what I understand and you read the newspapers like the Bible first thing in the morning. As a CEO, how do you stay ahead? Travel's important. I think getting back out into the world, that was a, a really sharp reminder to you. Always looking for what's global best practice. Yeah, it, it's an easy, it's easy to say it's it's sometimes harder to do, but you've got to surround yourself with some pretty outstanding talent. And I look around my leadership group and I've got some pretty outstanding talent. We've got some of the very best uh, leaders and retailers in in Australasia, and I think we're very fortunate to to have that. Um, and you got to be curious. You got to you. You should be the dumbest person in the room all the time, not the smartest person. Because if you're the dumbest person in the room, you're soaking up information. You know, eventually you thread that together, and you're asking good questions, and and you're constantly curious. 
And I think, you know, there's a sprinkling of intolerance, right? I think, you know, you're the coach in chief. You're the one that's got to sort of set the time for the sprints and the, and how many laps everyone's got to run around the over. You've got to bear, have a little bit of intolerance in there to push because sometimes I can see a little bit more in some of my team than maybe they can see in themselves or in, a, in an opportunity and, and you push a bit, a bit harder and try and nuance that so that, you know, when they do achieve a bit more than they can, you celebrate that success and then work with them to work out how they're going to go that step further as well. And if you look back at some of those big calls you've had to make, I think you talked about gut instinct takes a lot more play now as you've got more experience. But if you did look back at one or two, you think, my God, I've got that one wrong. How'd you get it wrong and what would you have changed? I think the things that I've got most wrong are probably in dealings with people. You know, I think at, at times you sort of assume that by, by operating a certain manner, you're going to bring the best out and, and you don't think that we're, we've got a good we've got a good operating model and a good capital allocation model. So, you know, you, you contain risk around... Uh, capital investment and, and therefore, you know, every now and then there'll be something as simple as going to a store and suggesting to a team to move a few things around and see if it generates more sales and it's a it's a it's a flop, right? They're, they're little things, but um, ultimately it's in the it's in the things that you do one on one with people where you kind of look back and go, I, I could have been a better version of myself in that moment. And then how do you put that right and actually be a better version for the future uh, and put things right with the individual as well. So what's next in store for Michael? It's an interesting world out there, right? And, you know, eventually you've got to get out of the way. Like CEOs, MDs, they're relay runners, right? I've, I've taken a baton from someone and I will give the baton to someone else. Uh, baton changeover in relay races, as we've seen at, at Olympics and Commonwealth Games over many, many years, is the high-risk part of a relay. The running's the easy part. What CEOs have to learn, work, learn is how far you got to run. And the beauty of working in a business like West Farmers is it's a, it's a business that's focused on long-term. You know, so I'd love to have a decade, maybe a bit more in this role, but I know I've got to get out of the way at some point in time. So identifying great talent to bring through and, and succeed me and, and make the company an even better place is something that, you know, I'll turn my mind to at some point in time. I've got incredibly close relationship with my, my two sons, an amazing family. You want to go and enjoy some of that. You work hard for a long period of time in your life. You want to enjoy it. I'm a believer in, you know, the next, the next right things will turn up rather than necessarily try and go and define or chase them. I'm having some fun. You know, outside of work, support a couple of amazing charities and a couple of sporting clubs. And, you know, I'm learning a lot from those experiences, yep. working with some amazing people. So, um, yeah, I've got a pretty pretty nicely full cup at the moment. And um, we'll see where uh, what, what tips in and tips out in the future. Okay. And if you were to look back at that young man pushing those trolleys all those years ago at Target, what advice would you give him now? Great question. Probably take chances and back yourself. You've done that, haven't you? Yeah. I think that's why that's why I'd probably give him the same advice. And I think equally, don't be afraid to make mistakes because if, you know, I, I could spend a week sitting with you talking about all the things that have gone wrong, you know, and, and you tend to focus on on those more because they're, they're the crucible moments to help you make better choices in the future. And you, you can own those. I think, you know, ultimately things that don't go right are on, you know, largely on you. They're, they're choices you make, they're behaviours you displayed. Inevitably, things that go really well are truly the combination of teams of people doing amazing things, you know, and I've been attributed with certain things going right or changing in Bunnings, you know, for the better or worse. And, you know, ultimately there's, there's plenty of fingerprints on, on those cups. So you tend not to um, not dwell on those, but rather look at the things that maybe weren't quite right and use those as a chance to be a bit better tomorrow. On that, Michael, thank you very much for joining us today. My absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for your time, and uh, I hope people that listen to this find it interesting. Thank you. I'm sure they will. You've been listening to No Limitations. 